So, guys, we, we're starting with uh, a series on, on the life of Moses. And the reason why we're starting a series on the life of Moses and why we think you should take this seriously is because the, the moments surrounding Moses' life is so pivotal to the whole biblical story. There is not a, a singular event more referenced throughout the Bible than the Exodus. When God identifies himself, he says, I am the Lord your God who led you out of slavery, led you out of Egypt. So we have this repetitive theme that it's one of the primary ways in which God identifies with his people, all right? In Matthew's gospel, you, you, you see him, you see Jesus, because Matthew is, is, is writing a very Jewish gospel. He's trying to convince the Jewish leaders of Jesus's identity, his true identity, and he's presenting Jesus as a, as a second Moses. So this theme is, is just critical. And then lastly, I think something worth considering is the fact that when, when Jesus comes to the most climactic aspect of his ministry, which is his death and resurrection, it happens over Passover which is when the Israelites commemorate the, the, the exodus out of Egypt, out of slavery. So this event is pivotal, and we really need to make sense of it in as much as we want to um, uh, understand Jesus better. And sometimes it might be easier for some of us to relate to, let's say, Paul, because Paul is cons consistently in, in the New Testament giving us principles, all right? But the Old Testament does not give us principles. It gives us pictures. It gives us a story. It gives us a narrative. So where the New Testament will often give us theology or principles, the Old Testament will give us a picture. It will give us a story. Now, one of these stories I want to pick up um, in pretty much the beginning of the book of Exodus. And uh, you guys can, can just... Uh, follow with me in your, your own Bibles, or just trust me that what I'm reading comes from the Bible. So, Exodus 1 from this 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, oh, okay, well, what's going on? So, um, some of you might know that uh, there's this, this wonderful story in the book of Genesis where Joseph is sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt. It seems like Egypt was, uh, they, they had a speciality in terms of uh, the, the slavery industry. So Joseph is sent there, but he, he rises to prominence. He sits at the right hand of the, the Pharaoh back then, and he saves the known world. And he brings his family, and everybody's happy, and the Pharaoh likes him and his family, obviously. But now, a couple of Pharaohs later, and things are not as nice as, as they were. All right, so a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are just too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made, made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. 
In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shepra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. <laughs> okay, so no, no C-section for the Jews. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a good child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with pitamen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would happen to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While a young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and, and they took her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. All right. We're going to read some more, but let me just try and unpack uh, a few things. So there are a couple of repetitive themes that runs through Scripture again and again. And in as much as we immerse ourselves in the life of Scripture, it is quite fun to try and pick up on these themes. And, and uh, Scripture just becomes very, very vibrant when we do. So the one thing that we notice again and again, is that the Egyptians are multiplying. Now, to, to be fruitful and to multiply is part of the blessing that God gave mankind in the garden. And, uh, and, and it is a symbol of just, well, blessing. But as what happened in the garden, there is a character that comes in, and it is a snake-like character that undermines this blessing. And if you, if you listen carefully, you would have picked it up in this passage. So Pharaoh said, let us deal shrewdly with the Israelites. Now that, let us deal shrewdly with the, the, the Israelites, which I'm not pronouncing very well, is the same word that is, that, that is used to describe the Satan, who was more shrewd than any other creature in God's kingdom. You guys remember that verse in, in Genesis 3? So he's more cunning than everyone. He's more shrewd. So what Exodus is trying to tell us is that we've got a new snake-like figure in the form of the Pharaoh. He's playing that snake role. And he's trying to undermine God's, God's creation. And 
if, you, if, if we even double click on it a little bit more, you will, you will notice some of the themes. So I'm not sure if you, if you picked up on it, but when, uh, when Moses' mom looked at him, she said, and she saw that he was a good child, and she kept him. Now, wh what does that mean? So some might say he's a healthy child, or, you know, or, 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 or it can refer to the fact that this is another creation moment where God created the first day, created the second day, and saw that it was good, and saw that it was good. So despite the fact that Pharaoh, despite the fact that this new snake is trying to undermine and decreate God's creation effectively, what we're reading is that, no, 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 God looked at his creation and saw that it was good. It is worth fighting for. It is worth preserving. And then something else happens that's very interesting. You've got this basket, and this basket is put, put um, yeah, full of, it used very archaic English, bitumen and pitch, daubed with bitumen and pitch. I don't know what those words mean, but I, I, get, the, I, I get the image, right? So they would waterproof the, the basket. It is the exact same words used when God instructed Noah to build the ark. Use pitch to waterproof this ark because I'm going to send water. Again, what is the analogy? If we just try and swim in this, this narrative of Scripture, what is going on? The same way in Noah that you just had this chaos and it just seemed like this whole creation experiment of God has, um, has gone south, you see God rescuing a remnant of creation. There is still hope. It is floating in the form of the ark. There is still hope. Although the snake is at work, there is still hope, and it is floating on the Nile River in a little basket. Are you with me? So these are so, so, some of the analogies that people pick up on. So there's oppression, and, and things are, are very bad, but we can immediately pick up that there's hope because there are some familiar themes um, happening. And also... Those of us who knows the rest of the story would know that though this tragic event, which is the, the massacring of all these Hebrew boys, although that happened, this is the beginning of the end for the tyrant, for the Pharaoh. Because this very decree that he put out to kill all these children is the very thing that will ultimately undermine his own, his own life and his own rule because Moses is drifting into his palace, right? So the, the irony is quite stark. Because of his, his fear of the Israelites is the very thing that sends this Israelite right to his doorstep. And then there's, uh, there's something else that I find quite interesting, and it's just a side comment. But I'm, I'm not sure if you've noticed, and I actually never noticed it until I, I studied it now a little bit, but you don't need to study it that much to see it. Moses' mom is paid to nurse her own child, you know, and um, many, you know, Jewish comedians, tongue-in-cheek, say that this is the ultimate Jewish thing. Um, you get paid to raise your own child. This is just amazing. All right. Something else. Exodus. We call it Exodus, which is a translation of the Greek, which means to go out to, to, to move, we use it today, there's an exodus, um, people are, are moving abroad, there's an exodus from South Africa, exodus, blah, blah, blah. But that is not the Hebrew name for the book of Exodus, that is the Greek name. The Hebrew name for the book of Exodus is the book of names. The book of names. Now that is interesting. One thing that we can know is that names play a very important role in the Bible, but it plays a very important role 
in Exodus because it is called the book of names. So let's unpack that a little bit. If you're a slave, you are nameless. You are identityless. You are not you are not a person, you're not a human, you are something that is um, that is dispendable. You are you, you are just a number. I, I'm not sure whether I am allowed to um, confess this, but, but no, actually I do it proudly. Me, me and my wife are now watching the fourth season of Stranger Things, and the protagonist in that, in that story is this lady who's sort of a slave type character, and what is her name? Okay, I'm just trying to catch who, who else are watching the 11. Well done, James, okay? I know James is watching. Anybody else knows the name? It is 11, okay. So she's 11 because she's just a number. She's just a science experiment. She's just a slave. Slaves are just numbers. They are absolutely invisible. And um, this is actually quite tough for me to say now, but I was a slave once. Um, when I went to hostel in, the, in my first year, I was, a, I was a slave, and I ceased being Yuan, and I became Yar, Yar, stand up, Yar, do that, Yar, go, go there, Yar. I wasn't a human anymore, I was dehumanized, and it was, and, and, and it's, it's, it's so brilliant, because halfway through the year, these same seniors who, they don't even look in your direction, you don't exist, you are just scum, you are just a Yar. And they would just walk past me, and I will have my name tag, and they will just say, hello, Yuan. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you for noticing me. Thank you for seeing my name. It is my name, and the senior, he knows my name. Um, and it feels so affirming because I'm, I'm not a slave anymore. I'm becoming a human again because this guy is not calling me Yar anymore or any other expletives that they also like to use. Uh, I, am, I am Yuan again. So, so there is... There's something very important in a name. Nameless things are dispensable. So uh, most of us are a bunch of city dwellers. We don't know much about the, the farm life. We get very sentimental about it. But one, one thing I've noticed is that the farmers do not like it when little city kids come and they start naming the sheep and naming the cattle and naming the chicken because it is not so nice to eat moomin uh, Moomin's steak or little fluffies, choppies. Uh, you, you, you don't like it. You don't want to eat things with names. You want to eat sheep. You want to eat, or, or, or actually, we don't even say sheep. We say lamb. We say pork. We say, what's the other one? Beef. Beef. So you, you, you try to make it as easy as possible to eat these things. You don't want to name these things, all right? And it's actually a political strategy as well. What do you think the apartheid government used? To, to dehumanize um, black people and create a fear in white people. The swart gevaar, the black danger. And it's so comical, I actually spoke to a guy who was part of that transition in the early 90s, and he said they would, uh, 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 this guy would come to him and say, we need to go to war, we need to get our guns, we need to fight. Okay, who are you gonna fight? Well, the blacks, of course. Uh, we need to fight the blacks. Okay, but which blacks? The blacks, the blacks, blacks. Okay, what about Tabu? Tabu works in your garden. Are you going to shoot him? Not Tabu, but the blacks. You know what I'm talking about. And then say, okay, well, what about, um, what about Joyce? Uh, she's raised your kids. 
not Joyce, not Tabu, but the blacks. So, so now it becomes a little bit more difficult. Oh, okay, I guess there are a lot of Joyce's and a lot of Tabu's out there. And it's not so easy to shoot them. But it's easy to shoot the Swart Gefar. It's easy to shoot the Gwede Gwede, which is now the derogatory term for foreigners in South Africa today. It's even um, easy to get rid of the whiteness or white monopoly capital, you know, so sort of the, the new string. It, it just sounds bad, oh, white, whiteness, whiteness. Um, but no, it's, it's people with names. And as soon as you take that away from them, I think in Rwanda it was cockroaches, right? That's how they describe people. They don't have names anymore. They are now just things. So it's a political strategy. So to be named is to be seen. It is to be valued. So names are very, very important. I want to just take a little bit of a detour and focus on, on names earlier in the, the biblical account uh, as, as to where we are now. So in the Tower of Babel, these guys are building this massive tower, and at one point they give their motivation, and they say we want to build a massive tower because we want to make a name for ourselves. Make a name for ourselves. That's interesting. That's interesting. And it becomes sort of an archetype for this, this way of being anti-God, this way of this, this, this city, this um, civilization that is opposed to God. So they want to make a name for themselves. And you know what is the story that immediately follows the Tower of Babel? God calls a guy called Abraham. Abraham is super insignificant. There is nothing flashy about him. And then God talks to him, he calls him, and he says, Abraham, I am going to make a name for you. Can you see the difference? You've got these people who want to make a name for themselves. God rejects that initiative, and he calls this nobody. He says, Abraham, I am going to make a name for you. You know what's the great irony in this story, this little passage that we read uh, this evening? is that we are introduced to two ladies. Um, I always forget their names. Shipra and Pua. Not the nicest names, but names nonetheless. Shipra and Pua, these two midwives. But notice who's not named. Pharaoh. Pharaoh goes unnamed throughout the entire book, um, th throughout the entire uh, book of names. He is nameless. Why? Because he's the archetype, he's the epitome of the, the Tower of Babel guys who want to make a name for himself. As a matter of fact, he is enslaving people so that they can build massive pyramids with his name on it so that he can make a name for himself. That is what his whole project is about. And yet he goes nameless in the book. In God's kingdom, in God's upside-down kingdom, these insignificant midwives who are risking their names by saving these Hebrew names, they get named. But this guy who's so obsessed of making a name for himself, who wants to kill these names, he's nameless. Are you with me? A lot of names in those sentences. All right. The next name in the account, in the passage that we read, is Moses. Now, that's an interesting name. In Hebrew, it means to draw out of water. I drew him out of the water. But here's the problem. If you are the Pharaoh's daughter, now look, the Pharaoh, if he was anything like any other Pharaoh, or any ancient pagan ruler in, in, in those worlds, he had many daughters, okay? 
they weren't known for their monogamy. All right, so they probably had a massive palace with all the daughters of all the concubines. So it's not necessarily, you know, his, his second of three children. All right. So, so one of his daughters sees Moses and she calls him, I drew him out of the water. But here's the problem. If you raise this kid in the palace, he doesn't quite look Egyptian. And your dad asks, what is his name? Oh, no, no, no. I drew him out of the water. Oh, that sounds... Um, Hebrew. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry about that. You know, I, I raised one of these kids that you wanted to kill. So it won't work. But the nice thing is that Moses has an Egyptian, is, is actually a known Egyptian name of the time as well. Because in Egyptian, it means sun. So it means sun in Egyptian. I drew him out of the water in, in Hebrew. And here's the beauty, friends. If you guys know anything about the rest of the story, and probably one of the, the climaxes of the story of the Exodus is what? The parting of the sea. God will take his son. He identifies as, with Israel as his son. And he will draw his son through the water. Even if you don't believe, friends, maybe you're a skeptic here today and you are so welcome. But you have to appreciate just the literary genius of, of scripture, just how these themes are woven into, into each other. All right, I want to continue reading in Exodus 2 from uh, verse 11 onwards. So, so Moses is now growing up in the, in the palace, life is good. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, you, you might ask, how does he know those are his people? Remember that he was nursed as a, by his mother. <laughs> and um, so they were involved for a big part of his, his life. So he's aware of the fact that, that he's this sort of strange hybrid creature. So he says, one day when Moses grown up, was grown up, he went out, and t uh, out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? The man answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rial, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his son Gashom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses is such a complex character because he tries to do the right thing. You, you have to feel sorry for this guy at this point. He tries to do the right thing. Um, he confronts this Egyptian slave master. It ends in a, uh, you know, in the squabble, and the man is killed. 
he doesn't feel Egyptian enough, so, so much so that when the Egyptian is lording it over the, the slaves, he cannot relate with the Egyptian. The next day, he goes to the, to the Hebrews, why are you guys fighting with each other? And these Hebrews don't recognize him as one of theirs. So he's a bit of a coconut, in a sense. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's too white for, for the black people and too black for the white people, you know, type of thing. Um, he's, he's not Egyptian enough for the Egyptians. He's not Hebrew enough for the, for the Jews. So he's, he's this very um, tragic character. And he tries to do the right thing. And eventually it leads to him having to run away. And this guy who grew up in the palace, this prince of Egypt, effectively becomes a herds boy. Or at least at, by then a herds man. Okay? So he's um, also known as a shepherd, by the way. Uh, he, he becomes a shepherd in the desert. And that's his job. And it's actually quite sad. He had all the promise. He, uh, he, he grew up as a prince. And now he is a shepherd in, in the desert. And life is not well, with the exception of the fact that he meets his wife at the well. But apart from that, things, things aren't great. And this is just a side note, but if you, if you read through the book of Genesis, then you'll notice that almost all romantic relationships in those days happened around the well. And, I mean, if it hasn't happened, somebody must do it. But you have to open a nightclub or something in Jerusalem called the well right? Come meet your spouse, the well. Um, but we can talk about that after the service. So, um, so his, his career is at a, is at a dead end. And, and things are tough. And then we read the following. Exodus 3, this is our last um, major passage for the, for the evening. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then God said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then I just want to read verse 11 as well. This is Moses' response. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So here's, here's the thing. Moses is old. He's tried a couple of times to make a difference. Both times it, 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 it ended badly. He's now an old shepherd in the wilderness. And then he gets the call. Moses, Moses. Why then? Why not when he was in the palace? Why not when he was in the prime of his life? Why now, when he's old, does he get the call, Moses, Moses? Again, friends, it connects with the theme earlier in the, in the biblical account when God calls Abraham. And he doesn't just call him Abraham, he calls him twice. Abraham, Abraham. Moses, Moses. And here's the, I think, the message. 
when you are old, when you are spent, when you are dried up, then God decides now is a good time to call this person. Why? Because only when you feel useless do you become useful to God. Only when you feel utterly useless do you become useful to God. We see this over and over again. Moses even says, oh, just send someone else, God. Please just send someone else. And maybe, maybe that is what makes, him, what makes him a leader. I watched Gladiator the other day again. And um, there's this, you, some of you guys might know the, you know the scenes. Commodus, he's sort of the bad emperor uh, to be the young kid played so well by Laquan. And then you have uh, uh, Russell Crowe, Maximus. And then Marcus Aurelius goes to Maximus just after they defeated the Germans there somewhere. And uh, he says, um, Maximus, you must become emperor. You know, that's a great, great Marcus Aurelius, obviously. Um, and... And he says, no, I, I want to farm. I want to play with my kids. I want to go back to Spain. I don't want to. He says, that is precisely why you have to become emperor, Maximus. So you have this, this one guy, Commodus. He just wants so badly to be the emperor. And you've got this guy who says, I just want to go home. I don't want to be the emperor. And it's almost as if again and again, that is when you are ready to lead. When you feel useless. Only then do you become useful to God. There's another theme, friends, that we hear again and again, and you're going to see this uh, as we progress in this series. But God says, I have seen your suffering. He doesn't only say that. He says, I have heard your cries. I know what is going on. When he calls Moses, he says, I have seen your suffering. I have heard your cries. I know what is going on. And this must have been so liberating for slaves who are almost by definition invisible to know that the God of all creation is seeing them, is noticing them. I see you. This must have been so empowering. Friends, to see or to be seen is so, is so essential to, to who we are as humans. There's this terrible but true story of Romania back in, 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 in the days of the Soviet Union um, under, you know, at the other side of the, the Iron Curtain. And they had these huge orphanages and all these, all these unwanted babies. And these babies would be in a hall. And you would go in there and there will not be a cry. None of the babies will cry. Why? Because it doesn't work. Nobody ever comes. Nobody ever comes to see that baby. So it is sort of you know, sleep training on steroids. Uh, they, and, and, and what they noticed as they researched it further and, and followed up on these children is that they developed in a way that, that made them uh, emotionally very badly adapted to meaningful relationships. Why? Because in such a pivotal moment of their lives, they weren't seen. They weren't being noticed. Babies need it more than anything. I've got a little toddler, and it doesn't matter where my eyes are, papa, papa, papa. And then 
Actually, you're Loki. And then he'll say, blah, 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 blah. And I said, come on, man, you just said nothing. And then, and then he'll go on. And then, again, he'll say, papa, papa, papa. Like, he called me. I, there's something he needs. Blah, 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 blah. He, says, he says nothing. And blah, 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 blah is, uh, thanks for looking at me. I want to be seen. That's it. He just wants to be seen. Kids need it. Humans need it. I've noticed my wife needs it as well. I have this very unfair wife. When we, when we talk about things, she'll be telling me something about her work. But because I am a very capable human being, I am obviously looking at the cricket score or something on my phone, um, just seeing what's happening in the war uh, and whatnot. And then she says, oh, just stop it. Just leave it. And then I'll say, Lorraine, I can literally tell you everything you just told me in the last 30 seconds. And then I, 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 um, I say what she just said, you know, her last couple of sentences. See, I was listening. And you know what? For some reason, she's not happy with me. And I've noticed that she wants to be seen. I must put my phone away. She wants me to... I, I, it's, it's not just that I should listen to her. It is that I should watch her. There's an intimacy that happens when, when we see other people. And there is a terrible deficiency in us that happens when we are, that we, when we are, when we are not seen. And the message of the book of Exodus, so early on, is that these, these slaves, these absolutely, um, these, these beings that are just used for slave labor, they are absolutely nothing. God says, I see you, I notice you. And friends, maybe that is the only thing that you need to hear this, this evening, that God sees, that he's a God who notices. There's this wonderful story in the beginning of John, in the, the Gospel according to John. God is calling his disciples, and he's calling, uh, and, and we read this. This is in, in, in John 1 from verse 45, I think. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Which, which is a little bit like, like, like us saying, oh, I have found the next president of South Africa. Like, this guy is amazing. Who is he? It's Fricky from Boxburg. And then, um, and then you'll say, can anything good come from Boxburg? So Nathaniel is not having any of it, right? And then Philip said, come and see. So Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, and I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. He just breaks down. What's going on there? Well, we need to speculate a little bit. Those of you who watched The Chosen, I think they did a wonderful job to, 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 to try and figure out and speculate what happened there. But I think it's, it's educated and reasonable guesses. Here's Nathaniel, and he is, he is down in the dumps because he's... His very excited friend runs to him and says, I, we have found him, we have found him. And his immediate reaction is, oh, whatever, Nazareth, come on. You, 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 you can't tell me. So he is deeply cynical. And then Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, I mean, Jesus did some pretty cool miracles, right? I mean, he calmed storms, he walked. So why on earth is him saying, 
I saw you under the fig tree. She's like, oh, wow, you must be, it's a little bit like I coming to, uh, like, if, I, if I see you guys on a Sunday and say, oh, I saw you the other day at the spa, and you guys say, oh, rabbi, you know, you know n- n- nobody, I mean, I've tried it a couple of times, nobody is that, that excited to, to hear about it. As a matter of fact, you guys are just creeped out by it. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that it's, it's, it's reasonable for us to speculate that that Nathaniel was going through something very difficult. And, and he was wrestling with God. And, and, and perhaps, we don't know what it is, but maybe he just said, why don't you see this? Why don't you feel my pain? Why don't you notice the unjust, the, how unjust this whole situation is? Why aren't you coming through for me? Whatever the situation might be. Why aren't you seeing me? And Jesus, Jesus comes in and he says, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And he breaks down. What is it in your life that you have been, you've been fighting about and it doesn't feel like you can get a breakthrough and it doesn't feel like God is seeing you? And he says to Nathaniel, he says to Moses, and he says to you, I see you. I see you. To be, to be seen, friends, is, and to be, to, be, to be noticed, for somebody to know your name, it's nice. It's nice if your HR manager at work knows your name, all right? But maybe you don't get such a fuzzy feeling you know, when they call you by your name. And then it might be nice if your boss or the CEO of your company really knows your name. That, that, is, that is really nice. It, it, it's getting better. Maybe there's a celebrity that you find valuable and they know your name. And you, you kind of chuffed by it when you're at a party or you know, wherever celebrities are. And, and they say, and they greet you by the name, you oh, yeah, we were at school together, <laughs> pretty cool. Um, you get a kick out of that. Um, but the God of the universe, Yahweh, he knows your name. That's got to mean everything. You see, it's not only that you have these various people getting their names, the Moseses, the midwives, and... These, these people of Israel. It's also God that gets his name, Yahweh. He introduces himself to Moses. I am Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? Is it just another name for a God? No, no, no. It is, it, it is very difficult to translate it. That's why we say, I am. God says, so tell, tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. But another way of saying it is, uh, is to say, being itself sent you. The, the, the very cause and sustainer of reality sent you. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm, I'm fast-forwarding now, so, so spoiler alert. But then he goes to Pharaoh and he says, Yahweh sent me. I am sent me. Being itself sent me. And he says, I don't know that God. <laughs> I, I only know sun God, Ra, or moon God. Being itself God. No, come on. I don't know that God. And the other thing why, why Pharaoh would have scoffed at, at Moses introducing Yahweh to him is because what kind of a God identifies with slaves? Who cares about slaves? That must be a ridiculous God. The answer is being itself. Yahweh. He is the one who identifies and names them and knows them and sees them.
Friends, that's got to be comforting to us. It's got to be comforting. Those of you, maybe maybe you're new to Pretoria, maybe you're you're new to a new company or or whatnot, um, but there's something very disorientating and very lonely, right? Going into a going into a new place, and and you are just faceless and nameless. I, on, on, on some of the tours that I that I take when I when I go into these places and you know I do a bit of a, a recce mission, you, you just feel like if if you disappear now, none of these people will care because they don't know you. It, 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 it's, it's a very lonely setup, and therefore it is incredibly comforting to know that Yahweh, being itself, knows you. But there's something else that I think happens as well, and that is dignity. Dignity is just thrown on every person. In a place like South Africa, it's very easy to just drive past a beggar and ignore the beggar, the side of the road. And friends, I don't think it's necessary, and this is another talk, by the way, I don't think it's necessarily wise to give them money because I don't think you're helping them. Um, I don't think it's wise to just ignore them either. So we need to be creative in how we help these people. But but we become a little bit desensitized, don't we? Ugh, not a beggar, just get out of my way. Don't make eye contact, just look at the gearbox, look at the gearbox. He's not going, he's gonna, he's gonna look away soon. Is, is, look away, ah, no, it's still there. Um, maybe that is not the best strategy. What if, what if this is true? It means that that guy has a name. God knows him. He has a story. And, and perhaps, He's just had bad luck and that's why he's on the streets. Perhaps it's been multiple bad decisions and he's very manipulative. Sure, the fact of the matter is that person has dignity. He's not, he's not a beggar. He's got a name. When you get a name, and maybe this also adds to this, this thing of how do you, what, what do you do with, with, with beggars? How do you deal with this very difficult situation? But when you get a name in the Bible, it is always associated with vocation. You've got a job to do. Drew you out of the water, Moses. You've got to draw a lot of people out of the water, my man. You've got a, you've got a job to do. Abraham, you're not Abraham anymore. You're now Abraham. You've got a job to do. Names are so important. Names are given or added on because you've got a vocation. You've got a job to do. We've got names. But friends, it's, you, you can't just feel fuzzy and cuddly and say, oh, thank you, God, you see me, you know me. All right, I'm just going to go on and just do nothing with my life. No, you've got a job to do. You've got, you've got snakes to undermine. All right, now I'm going, to, going deep. I'm not sure if you guys are catching that reference. But in the same way that these midwives were dealing shrewdly with the Pharaoh, in the same way that you've got all of these figures in the Bible fighting, um, fighting evil in various ways, you've got a job to do. You've got a name. I want to push it just a little bit further, and I'll close with this. Um, I know I've, I've given you a lot of information, um, but, but, but this is sort of a, a, a last little bit. When God reveals himself in the burning bush, there are a few interesting things that happens. Not sure if you guys picked up on it, but it starts off by saying there was an angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses, spoke to him from the burning bush. And then he asked him, who are you? And he says, I am. I'm Yahweh. So who is it now? Is it the angel of the Lord or is it 
Yahweh, who is this strange being talking to, to Moses from the burning bush? A lot of commentators try to wrestle with it. I think, and many of you, others do, um, this is a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. This is a pre-incarnate Jesus. What does Jesus' name mean? To deliver, to rescue. Kind of makes sense that he did his biggest thing over Passover, right? To deliver, to rescue us. That's a name worth remembering. But I want to just end with something that I think is paradoxical. Remember how we said earlier that you've got these Babylonian, uh, the, the guys at the Tower of Babel, they want to make a name for themselves, and then later you have Abraham, there's nobody, and God says, I want to make you a great name. You see this all over in Scripture. We see it with the midwives. Here's, here's the Pharaoh, he wants to make a name for himself. He becomes nameless. The midwives, these insignificant people just honoring God, they have names. They have dignity in, in, in how they operate. In the, in the Gospels, God tells this, this quite chilling parable, parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus. It's a story about hell, and it's, it's very interesting, and I would love to, to talk about that someday. But it's interesting that Lazarus, who was a slave, he's got a name. And the slave master, how is he identified? The rich man. He's nameless. He's nameless. Here, I think, is the message, friends. You can go through life, and the only thing that you can worry about is the name of Jesus, the one who delivered us, the one who rescues us. And if you forget about your own name, and you forget about making a name for yourself, and you forget about standing up for your own rights, you know, in, 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 in a silly, uh, dare I say, narcissistic way, and the only thing you worry about is his name, then paradoxically, you get a name. Only then do you get a name. But if you focus and you just want your name and you just focus on your name, you become nameless. You need to focus on the name of Jesus. And in that process, it seems we will be named. And with that comes incredibly, incredible dignity, but also a lot of work. We've got a job to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize you as the God who, who, who names, the God who sees, the God who, who hears our cries, the God who, the God who is. And Lord, some of us might feel completely invisible, completely uh, useless. Spiritually speaking, it would seem, Lord, that that is the best possible place that we can be. Because then you can really use us. Because we are, Lord, we are at different places in our lives. Some of us, uh, some of us here, are, just need to hear that no, hear that one message, and that is that, that that they are seen and that they are that you notice them. Some of us, however, need to to know that we are so busy with our own name, we are so busy with ourselves and trying to make a name for ourselves that in your upside down kingdom, it doesn't work that way. We will become nameless if we carry on on this path. I pray, Lord, that you will convict us 
those of us who are in need of conviction of that. Lord, thank you that you see us. Thank you that you don't give up on us, even though there's so much chaos, so much water rising, that, that nonetheless, even if it, if, when it looks like all hope is lost, you still have a little boat, a little rescue boat, to keep your mission on track. Thank you for that. Lord Jesus, but we, we thank you for the one who is greater than Moses. We thank you, Lord, for the one who gave us ultimate deliverance. We thank you for the name above all names, Jesus Christ. In him, Lord, we have dignity. In you, Lord, we have, we have a job to do. We partner with you. And Lord, maybe there are also people who are desperate to, who really need to know that, who really need to hear that they have dignity, inherent dignity, that there is a God being itself who is seeing them, hearing them, listening to them, knows them. Maybe it's our job to tell them that, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in the name above all names, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.